Welcome to Man to Man. This is Paul Arnold, your host, and once again, I'm so glad to welcome my friend Ron Potter as our co-host for this podcast, where we talk about how men interact with the world, with jobs and careers, and with our faith. And Ron hasn't been with me. We haven't talked on our podcast since way back in June. So, Ron, first of all, do you have a nice tan from the summer? Uh, actually, I do. I'm just looking at my uh, golfer tan here. When I, was, <laughs> when I was growing up, it was always called a farmer's tan because all the farm kids had T-shirts, and the, the tan started theirs down on mine. Mine starts above the ankle and works its way up, but my feet are uh, crazy white. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a good summer for golf. Well, the last podcast we did was about golf and how much it relates, we believe, to life and some of the challenges men face on a regular basis. And I know that you had a very big anniversary this summer and you had a big golf outing planned, right? I did, yes. It it was, I have to give all the credit to my wife here. We did not want a big party where you got to spend three minutes with every person and when you wanted to spend a half hour with them. Uh, so essentially she had a day with all of her bridesmaids and I had a day of all the guys who stood up with me and we went to a golf course which I was really looking forward to, and essentially watched uh, torrential rains and rivers running across the fairways and greens all day. Uh, So never even touched a golf club, but the golf club club was gracious enough to just let us sit and took over the whole restaurant and spent all day talking and eating and uh, sharing and laughing, and it was Turned out to be just a fabulous day. So, but uh, we're going to try to to golf golf again yet, maybe some sometime later this year. So. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's Michigan, and although we've talked to that Michigan has some of the best golf courses ever, we do have a lot of rain with all the Great Lakes around us. Um, yeah. I, I was able to get out about four times, and um, with golf, it's who you golf with to me is the best part of it. And I got to golf with my nephew last Saturday and I finally was able to put together a good round and it was just, nobody was in front of us. No was behind us. That was the, oh, yeah. the perfect golf outing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you get time to talk and cover a bunch of areas. And, uh, we had a good time And this summer. I went camping with my kids at different times and the big news for us is that my son and his wife had their third daughter born about three weeks ago and uh wow really excited about that and ron knew my son when he was uh in junior high when we moved to ann arbor so a lot of things have changed ron yeah they sure have i don't know whether to off condo- offer condolences <laughs> or concerns with three daughters i had two and that was all i could handle <laughs> <laughs> We're hoping that daughters take care of dads. Is that true? You know, I think my daughter uh, tries. No, they're starting to. I'm rather enjoying it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Ron mm-hmm. has two daughters, and he lives in the Grand Rapids area, and he gets to see his grandkids quite often and does consulting still, but more of a remote uh, online basis than he used to. And I work in the healthcare uh, industry as a chaplain and also do work with compliance and ethics as well. So that's some of our background if you haven't joined us before. And so I really enjoy this time with Ron because it reminds me of when Ron lived close to where I live near Ann Arbor and we would get together for coffee at Panera Bread or somewhere else and we would just sit and talk and discuss and I would pick Ron's brain about what he thought about certain things because Ron is a great reader and in fact if you want to read his short reviews of books, go to his website, tlcllc.org, and you can read them there. Dot com. Dot com, excuse me. Dot com. So, Ron, have you read any good books that you can recommend? Well, it's it's interesting. I have another group that uh, I can't remember if we've talked about or not, Paul. Uh, we call ourselves the Space Cadets <laughs> uh, <laughs> for various reasons. There's actually a, a line that goes along with that. But essentially, we're four uh, consultants. We're all 
I think one guy's going to turn 70 in a year or two here. We've all been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. We all have a Christian foundation, and we tried to get together several times a year and just talk about our consulting business and what we're facing and, and the difficulties that our clients are having and how can we help them and how can we blend in our uh, Christian base uh, and background into that because we have just seen it help so much through the years. And one of the things we do uh, often is we'll review one of the books we've been reading. And so just a few weeks ago, I had the space cadets up at my uh, cabin near Gaylord. And the book we looked at for that is called A Failure of Nerve, uh, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. Mm. And Edwin Friedman is the uh, author of that. And I'm, I've been used to uh, Amazon, Kindle books for years, and one of the reasons I love them is I can highlight it while I'm reading it, and then I can go into a file and capture all of my highlights, and I have them all in a Word document. Nice. Well, that particular book, I was just looking at it the other day, I have 58 pages of highlights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so as I look back on a lot of books I read, that one very likely is the one that got more highlights than any other book. The book itself can't be more than about 250 pages. So uh, essentially I was I was capturing, you know, maybe, I don't know, I mean, just a huge amount of that, uh, that book as I was reading it. it. It's just a really powerful book, but... I, I do believe we are in the age of quick fix. Uh, I think our kids uh, are exposed to it even maybe a little more than we are at times because they've grown up with all these computers and everything. And if we've been lucky enough to learn what they were along the way, they've been very useful. But they really are in an age of quick fix, and it takes nerve according to this author, a failure of nerve to be a leader in that age and uh, hang in there. And so I, I think it's a pretty powerful book. It, uh, it's got some pretty good stuff with it. So, Is this so. the same Edward Edwin Friedman that wrote Generation to Generation, which is a book about family dynamics? Uh, it could be, Paul. I don't, I don't confirm that without looking it up, and I'm not going to take time right now but yeah uh, sure you're probably not many edward friedman's edwin friedman's around right right so yeah very likely well i had read a book by him if it's the same author years ago maybe 20 years ago that really changed the way i viewed my family and my role in family and it helped me mm. be healthy in my family and it was called generation to generation and so it may be the same author but it's interesting you're talking about the failure of nerve um so in that book does it talk about that like the greatest generation learned how to have nerve because they were put in like battle situations or that they were entrusted more when they were younger like a farmer might trust his 14 year old son to go farming and these days um we're not having that experience as young. So how would you summarize this book? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and review it even a little more to find out if there was some of that uh, greatest generation stuff there or not. But it, it does talk about how everything that's you know going on around us uh, just makes it more difficult for us to have the, the nerve and the maturity to stand up and take responsibility is one of the you know real highlights uh, that I picked up in there. Uh, I, I just see fewer and fewer people, and it's not just the millennials either. I mean, I don't want to start a whole nother conversation here, but I'll, I'll say our politicians <laughs> uh, at the same time. I just, I just see fewer and fewer people taking responsibility for their own emotional well-being 
Mm. And and I think our you know our instant media and our social media and everything is contributing to that, uh, and it's not not leading in a good direction. I don't think overall. No. Right, because politicians don't want that soundbite or do anything that can loop over and over again, and then also right. they're uh, concerned about being put in the same camp with somebody else, like guilt by association. And mm-hmm. I I have a friend who comes to see me at work, and his son works as an aide to one of the congressmen from Michigan. And the grandson has said that the congressman's done. He's only served one term, but or two terms, but he's so disgusted that nobody has the nerve or the courage to say, this is what we're going to do and follow through with it. It's mm-hmm. And I think the nerve more about, do you have the nerve to push some uh, agreement that they're so entrenched in their own camp that they're not willing yeah. to to move or to budge and it's the polarization of America I think we see in so many different ways that instead of being identifying ourselves with a community or with a nation we identify with people who think like us even more and it's easier to do that with the internet and social media that we get more isolated, more have it your own way in our own private groups. And so we're not having those conversations across the board. And before we started the podcast, I told Ron um, that although I wanted to talk today about how men can deal with new bosses or build that relationship, I think what I'm really interested in right now is the millennials. Because my son who listens to this podcast says he enjoys it when Ron and I go back and forth and discuss the subject a little more in depth. And Ron, I, I found an a article by Jeremy Boudinet, who is a 28-year-old self-claimed millennial, and he wrote this uh, internet piece, and he said there's three things that people need to know about millennials in the workplace. Uh, number one is that he said, I've grown up in a time of great uncertainty, uh, 9-11, uh, stock market recession, politicians, uh, social changes. And so he said because of that, he believes his generation is more cynical and less trusting than previous generations. And they view uh, not only work, but other situations or relationships in their life more mercenary, like what is it in for me? And Mm -hmm. that to me is sort of a sad commentary um, that if times are uncertain when I was growing up, and I think times have always been uncertain at some level. I mean, I would go to my parents for some, some stability, or I would go to church to get some stability, or I would, you know, go to school to get some stability. But I think what kids are saying now is maybe they don't have those groups or those organizations or that structure to give them the stability that maybe previous generations got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you're right, and and this author is right, I think. Uh, I began to describe it even a long time ago now. I mean, you know, I grew up as a product of that greatest generation, so my dad, you know, came home from World War II, and the, the country was just, you know, taking off and getting started, and turning into this giant manufacturing outfit. And, you know, back then it was, it was 40 years and out. I mean, you went to work for somebody and that's who you worked for, for your whole lifetime. And you bought certain brands, you know, my, my dad, you know, bought a certain brand of automobile and truck and that, that was it. He wouldn't consider any other brands. Was he Ford or Chevy or was he? Well, it was General Motors, essentially. Uh, And yet, you know, in my consulting career uh, and in my life, I guess, as well, is that I began to see all of that, what I would call loyalty back then, uh, sort of disintegrate right around the year 2000 is where I would put it. It certainly wasn't that finite, but you know, it was really through the 1900s that you saw that loyalty. And since the 2000s, I haven't seen it anymore. And my initial reaction was that was sad. But then you come to realize that, well, 
no, there wasn't really anything besides advertising behind that loyalty anyway. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it wasn't such a bad loss, but I, I think that's, that's part of it. When they say they're, you know, a little more cynical or things have been unstable or what, I, I think it's, I don't think it's just happened. I think it's been happening for a long time, but it's, you know, become much more prevalent now and obvious now that, uh, you know, brand loyalty in particular just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you know, the, the Madison Avenue advertising people back in the 70s, 80s, 90s wouldn't even, wouldn't even know how to sell anything today because <laughs> they were all focused on brand loyalty back then, and that just doesn't happen now. So it's, uh, it's an interesting change. Right. And I get it. I understand if you want what's best for you. And I think it comes from the base underlying belief that people are not looking out for your best interests, that you yes. can't trust anybody else to do the right thing. You can't trust politicians. That's nothing new. But you can't trust yep. people in authority. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we had the bumper stickers question authority. And then since then, you have Nixon, who proved not to be trustworthy. And then slowly but surely, we see the evidences where people don't trust people in authority. Very few people do. It's rare. And then even Mm -hmm. the really capable leaders of our generation don't seem to want those positions of authority because they know the price they'll have to pay. Uh, I look mm-hmm. at right now the not getting political, but just the Democratic uh, candidates, and I think I wonder how many other really great qualified candidates do not run because they don't want to pay the personal price of today. Right. In this day and age, I think of Colin Powell, the great. He was a great leader in the army. He served as a uh, Secretary of State, and yet he didn't run for president because he basically said how much it would toll it would take on his family. Um, yeah. And so I totally understand the sense of I don't trust people in authority. They're not looking out for my best interests. And mm-hmm. the most skeptical millennials would say, well, this is capitalism gone off the tracks. That if cap- mm-hmm. capitalism is not uh, balanced some way with uh, community or country responsibility, you know, co- community service, if it's not balanced somewhat to support the system, if it only becomes about the stockholders getting their money, then we've lost a lot of trust and a lot of cohesiveness in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, personally, I, I, I still have a trouble with labeling that capitalism gone bad. I, I still think it's people who have gone bad and they and they're in all kinds of systems. I mean, to me, socialism has gone horribly bad and killed millions of people mm-hmm. versus capitalism has gone bad with greed. All right, well, which do you want? You know, murder or greed? Uh, uh, I don't know. So I, I don't, I have a little trouble thinking that it's the system of capitalism or the system of socialism or whatever. And I think in every case, it's the people. It's, mm-hmm. you know, have, have we lost the trust there? I mean, you know, the one book I've written so far, I'll keep saying so far until I die, probably. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it's, the title of it's called Trust Me. And it's the elements of things that make you trustworthy. And the number one element is humility. Well, you know, if you've lost that, it doesn't make any difference whether you're capitalist or socialist. It's it's going to go bad mm-hmm. one way or the other. So I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm just holding on to old beliefs myself, and I, I do have to watch that because I'm very capable of doing that. But I, I, just, I just don't think it's a system that's gone bad. It's people that have gone bad. Right. And I agree that any system could be corruptible. And... Yeah. You have the temptations on both sides, whether it's capitalism or socialism, and our society is so quick to label and to just pigeonhole you based on that label. And that's nothing new, but I think 
with the day and age of social media and so many different news outlets were bombarded. So I'm expecting yeah, yeah. a different pushback where the generation after the millennials will say too much. I'm just withdrawing from so much coming at me and mm-hmm. withdrawing more from interacting with communities and things like that. And I don't think isolation is the answer either, but I think there's a certain point of survival when you have so much coming at you that you can't quite discern if it's what, where's the truth in all this and where somebody's opinion. So I, I can get where this Jeremy Boudinette says, Hey, millennials have grown up in a time of uncertainty and that's affected how they trust authority figures. The second thing he says is that millennials are conditioned to expect constant feedback, to have a constant feedback loop, meaning that when I first got hired as a financial accountant or account executive, my boss set me up and says, okay, here, this is what you need to do. This is what I want you to do. I'll check with you in a week. Uh, Go for it. And Mm -hmm. what this guy is saying, no, millennials expect more follow-up from their employer. So less follow-up means you're not interested in me. More follow-up means you trust me and you want me to do more. So mm-hmm. inactivity is not welcomed by millennials. Right. And uh, my daughter shared some of that with the company she's working in now that she's she wants to do such a good job, but other people are busy. And so for a while there, she was wondering, do they not want me to contribute? But it wasn't intentional. They were just busy on their own projects. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about this feedback loop? Is In your experience working with businessmen and men in work, how much feedback is normal these days compared to the way it used to be? Well, uh, and that, that is also where I will say my belief is that there, it's a system <laughs> – or the people in the system that has gone bad. Uh, I mean, you know, the much of my career, certainly the last two decades of it, a lot of it was around the issue that corporations had just fallen into this pattern of the annual performance review. Mm. Well, that just doesn't work. I mean, there's just there's just so much evidence that, you know, I have two granddaughters who are both excellent horse people. Well, you know, come back in a month and try to explain to that horse that he made a wrong move in the competition <laughs> in July ain't going to work. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it has to be immediate and right now, and they have to understand, and yet, I think because of that 40, 50 years of history where, you know, America was just getting industrial and where we went to, well, we're experiencing, you know, labor union issues today kind of thing where people just became one more replaceable part, like a hub on a wheel kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, An annual performance review was fine. Um, I mean, I, since I've stopped my full-time consulting career, I'm spending almost all of my time working with another group of people developing an app that's on your phone, that's on your tablet, that's on your laptop that helps leaders and teams give constant, up-to-date, every time you pick up your phone, feedback kind of thing because... It is needed, and it's the only way we can learn. When you have an annual uh, review session, you know, the best manager can remember one or two or three good things or bad things that happened in the last six weeks, and there there may have been 54 weeks of fantastic performance that's forgotten, mm. uh, and it, it's just a ridiculous system, so... I think what he's reacting to is, you know, a bounce back, a pushback of a system that's gone bad over time. Annual performance reviews is just ridiculous. Right. And it may be a little 
connected to that time uncertainty. If you grew up in a time of uncertainty, yeah. then you may be uncertain about your own performance abilities and anxious yep. about, am I doing a good job or not? And so getting more feedback is a good thing. There's times I've seen in business where guys just lay low. They don't want the feedback. They don't want the attention. They just want to keep plugging yeah. away and be low maintenance. But the new generation mm -hmm. seems to want it. And the third point that he wrote down was that uh, millennials are constantly measuring themselves with others. And he said that's mm -hmm. definitely a direct connection with social media. He says that, you know, maybe his dad would compare himself with the guys he graduated from high school or college with. But he says he's measuring himself not only with the people he grew up with, but people on Facebook who are saying, yeah, I, made, I passed the bar exam, or I, I did this, I did yep. that. And studies have shown that people who look at social media more than several hours a day are actually depressed because there's yep. that perception that everybody has it better than they do. It's almost like we need to have Facebook for the real world, you know, what really is yep. um, the real world. But um, how have you, over your career, tried to measure what you do? Because you do something that's hard to compare with other people because you're a consultant and it's not like there's somebody right next to you doing the same thing. Well, uh, I guess two reactions to that. One is, I can't, again, uh, pardon me, but I can't remember if we did talk about the rule, uh, the book called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Have we We've touched on that, that briefly, but haven't gone into detail. That's fine. Uh, his rule number four says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Now, oh. this, is a, this is a psychiatrist <laughs> that is saying, I have been observing life and people for years, and it may be an oversimplification, but here's 12 rules that you can live by that if you do, you're not going to be on the psychi psychiatric couch. You're going to avoid... <laughs> avoid that, you know, depression and uh, everything else. And one of them is don't fall into that. I mean, you know, people don't sit down to Facebook and write all the stupid things they did that day. No. Uh, <laughs> so, well, sometimes they know, do, Ron, but that's because they want attention. They want sympathy, <laughs> but that's a whole other discussion. There, there, there's a, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> And, and so that's one thing. I guess the other thing, when you, as you mentioned, a career that I grew up in, several people through the years would come to me and say, I want to join you. I want to join your company. And I was always tried to be very gracious, saying, absolutely, no problem. What, you know, how are you going to do that? And what are you going to do? And, and, why would that be a benefit to us? And, and, you know, it was very easily discerned that they would say, well, just show me your stuff and I'll, I'll go do that again and again and again and again. And my reaction is, A, it's not going to work because it's not you, it's me. So trying to do my consulting work with who you are is, is a non-starter, you know, mm. at the beginning. And the second part was I have some things I've learned, but I don't have a set of rules or a set of guidelines or process that I go into my consulting work with. I go in and sit down and say, and look at what's going on. What are the root causes here? What's happening? And, I I never know what topic's going to come up. Uh, my wife used to laugh at me because she would say, you just spent four hours preparing for that trip and you got home and told me what happened and, and you never cracked the cover of what you prepared. And that was true. Uh, that preparation just made me feel better about myself. <laughs> but the reality was every time I walked in the door, it, it was really nothing 
about what I had prepared for, for the most part. And it was just, so, you know, I don't know. I don't, none of that makes sense to me. I don't think you can compare yourself to other people. It just, it leads to, you know, bad right. <laughs> health and medical processes right. uh, along the way. As Peterson says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, mm-hmm. not to who someone else is today. It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. You came from a totally background. Are you learning? Mm-hmm. Are you growing? Are right. you developing? Are you handling those things that you know are bad things for you? <laughs> Uh, you know, are you avoiding uh, stuff that's addictive? We all have addictive natures of one form or another. And, uh, you know, what, how are you doing with that? Right. that? That's what you measure yourself with. I love that quote, and you reminded me of a time where one of my first jobs of responsibility was I was director of a summer day camp for kids working with Salvation Army, and we were working with uh, kids who literally were from the other side of the tra- railroad tracks. They were kids mm-hmm. who grew up with not too much, but they loved that we were there. And the first year I co-directed, it was mostly hands-on. The second year was a lot of administrative. And I was dealing for the first time in my life. I was 20 years old. I had 14 staff members that I was trying to supervise. I was trying to look over a budget. <laughs> I look back now and I'm thinking, why did they put me in charge of that? But so I, I remember coming home and really frustrated because I wasn't getting the direct care of the kids. I wasn't playing with the kids, which was fun. Instead, I was dealing with putting out fire after fire, headache after headache. And some of the counselors were fighting. I came home and I was still living at home. My dad said, What's wrong? And I said, Oh, I didn't get anything done. It was, I don't know if I'm doing any good. And he says, Well, tell me what you did today. And I said, well, I did A, B, C, D. I went through a list, and I listed, I think, 11 different things that I did. He says, I, that sounds like you did a lot today to me. I said, He said, you know, once in a while you have to stop and, and count what you really did and celebrate that before you get depressed that you haven't done enough. You know, take yeah. that, mm-hmm. celebrate it, and then say, okay, make your list for tomorrow. But you're making progress and just hang in there. And you're that making was, progress, yep. And it just helped me reframe it. Um, so yeah. even today when I left work, I said, oh, there's so much I have to do. But then I stopped and said, boy, I did a lot. And, yeah. <laughs> and that was good. Um, in my line of work, part of my job is to go and do counseling with people when they're going through a great transition. And uh, one of the things that I've sort of, simil- sort of come together, I've condensed it down to train volunteers who work with me, is I tell them that when you go to see somebody, first be polite. That's their place where they're living and respect them. Showing that politeness and respect builds a trust. And then second thing, Mm -hmm. be a detective, meaning that when you walk in that room, start doing an inventory of what you see. You know, are there flowers Mm -hmm. by the bedside? Is there cards there? Uh, Is the room a mess? Is the person a mess? Or are they really Mm -hmm. taking care of themselves because that tells you a lot about who they are who they're connected with and even what they're feeling like if somebody has a furrowed brow or looks in a painful expression that probably means they're in pain so be a detective Um, the third thing is be present meaning that stay focused on that person you're not there for yourself stay present so don't let your mind wander and listen yep. for key words that they tell you as evidence because of what they want to talk about. Because time after time, people tell me what they want to talk about indirectly. Because they'll bring yes. up topics or they'll bring up a very st- strange word that doesn't seem to fit with everything else. And if I simply pursue that, then we're going to get to a good place. They're going to get to where they need to be. And I think over the time, I've developed confidence that I know how to do this. And the volunteers will look at me like, well, don't you have a plan? Or aren't you worried about this or that? And I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I've done this enough. And when I hear you talk, Ron, I feel the same way. That you have the confidence to walk in, to listen, and to diagnose what's going on, and then pursue it. And I found that if you simply listen 
be a detective, build that trust, and seek what's really the energy in what they're saying, people will think you're great because how often do we really listen and really focus in on what really matters? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think you just reduced Peterson's 12 rules of life to three. Oh, uh, I did. Huh? I, I think there's a book in there someplace. You better be <laughs> writing it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, that that's just brilliant. I mean, absolutely. Can you imagine? There isn't a person on this planet who would experience those three, you know, steps from another person and not feel cared for and understood and loved and respected. I mean, what a different world that would be. Uh, It's fantastic. So I think you hit it right on the head. Well, it's helped me at work and it's helped me at home too, to be really honest. That's at times... I can't walk into the room thinking I know so much or people should listen to me because I have experience. I, I think mm-hmm. I, I had to get to the point where I know what I already know, but I don't know what you know. And being yes. confident in yourself not to parade your credentials out or to prove your worth, but to be um, calm and cool and collected. And I think you really just, that's how I perceive you too, Ron, is that you come in a room and it's not about you. You are humble you listen, and then you build trust. And that really produces some fruitful, great relationships, too, uh, mm-hmm. with people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've over the years you've had people that I think have admired what you do, think it's a good thing to do. What would you tell somebody out there who says, you know, I could be a consultant and or I'd like to invest in people <laughs> What would you say to them in this day and age of consulting? Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you can go for a little while, but uh, well, that's maybe it's a whole other podcast coming up. So I I guess I'll start with the negative side of that. One of the things that I've seen happen in my industry, if I can call it that, but consultants in general, is a push internationally for certification. You know, you must be certified to be a consultant. And there's there's entire global organizations now set up to help you gain your certification. Uh, I was first approached to do that by a client I've had for a number of years. They're actually headquartered in England, but they have a huge U.S. presence. And I had, I, I worked at a, it's a major organization, one of the you know top 100 organizations in the world, sort of that size. Mm-hmm. And I tended to work at about the third level down. The person I was working with, their boss's boss was the CEO of this company. So sort of at that level. Mm -hmm. And I had worked with him for years. And then he came to me and he said, all right, I need you to do something for me. And I said, fine, what's that? He said, I need you to get your coaching certification. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, okay, tell me, you know, my, is there something I don't know? Am I failing you? Do I, you know, wrong? I mean, I was kind of going, he says, no. He said, the corporate headquarters in London has determined that all of the coaches they hire throughout the world must be certified. And so if I'm going to be able to keep using you, mm. I need, need you to get certified. So I talked to a couple of people in their organization to kind of find out, you know, why they were pushing for that. And in the end, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll do it to experience it anyway. And so I went through the whole certification process that took about two years. Hmm. And the second year of it was just demanding beyond, I mean, I, I should have spent full time just getting my certification, but 
Mm. I would have had no income. I mean, it was just that kind of thing. And when I got done, my reaction was, well, that was okay. I learned some new things, but what they're pushing for is sameness. What they're Everybody do this the same way because that's the only way certification knows how to work. I have to be able to measure you to see if you perform to these standards. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, I didn't, I didn't quite honestly think it was worthwhile. And I went back to the people in the organization who were responsible for putting that in and said, okay, it's been two years since you've had this in place. Uh, how's it going? And they said, mm, it's fine. And I said, well, are your consultants better or worse than they were before? <laughs> and they said, well, some are good, some are bad. And I said, any difference from before they were certified versus after they were certified? <laughs> they said, no, not really. <laughs> mm. So, you know, I just figure out who you are and what you bring to the party. And I think the other thing relates to what you've been talking about here is that one of the concepts that I've, I've worked with every one of my clients on for over 30 years is the concept of listen with the intent to understand versus listen with the intent to respond. Uh-huh. And I'm, I've become very conscious of that. I, I know if I'm listening to another person, if I will just be self-aware enough for half a second, I'll realize I'm, I'm building this little checklist in the back <laughs> of my brain mm-hmm. <laughs> that yes. says, as soon as this person's going to pause, I'm going to throw my, I'm, I'm going to confirm it. I'm going to deny it. I'm going to, you know, right. give reasons for it. I'm going to give her, and I've got this whole list going. You're loading and up. I, <laughs> I'm loading up. Yeah, absolutely. And when you seek to understand it, it provokes a whole different set of questions. It's, it's curiosity based. It's like, wow, that threw me. Why would you think that? Or what background have you had that would put you in that place? Or what are those experiences that you've gone through that I know nothing about that would lead you to that conclusion? And, you know, not with the intent to say it was right or wrong, just to understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, the, the hardest place to do that's at home with your spouse or your kids or, you know, I <laughs> I typically don't do that. I'm, I'm doing that checklist you know, <laughs> uh, kind of thing. Uh, but boy, when when somebody listens to you with the intent to understand, which I think is what you were talking about. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's like they are so much more willing to listen to how you think about it afterwards than if you listen with the intent to respond. If you listen to what they say and then just throw out your checklist, you know, their reaction is, yep, you're just like everybody else. Right. But if well, you come back with curiosity, mm-hmm. then that's different. You know? I One point you've just reminded me of, and I didn't load up, I hope I didn't load up, I'm seeking to understand, but have you found <laughs> this to be true, that when I'm at home, I'm easier to be defensive? and to load up and be ready to respond. And at work, I'm more curious, and I don't take it personally, but I think a warning sign to me, a red flag at work, is when I start to load up at work. You know, I see, I feel this change. Like, instead of being that seeking to understand, I'm finding myself throughout the day with a thinner skin. I start to get a little more defensive, and now all of a sudden, yeah. I'm at a point like, whoa, wait a second. I understand it when I'm at home, but if I'm starting to do that at work too, then something's going on that's different. Something has shifted. And I try to take a pause. I try to seek a friend out and say, hey, I realize that I'm not 
as objective or doing as well at work as I used to. You know, I'm getting, I'm more thin-skinned, and I need to figure this out because I don't like that change. And um, it's being self-aware. So for yourself, yes, I mean, how have you learned to be more self-aware? Where you catch yourself doing it, <laughs> like you said, you catch yourself loading up. What 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 helped you to be more self-aware like that? I don't I don't know what it is that's helped me, Paul, but I, I learned something from a medical point of view. Well, I, I just experienced it first, and then I actually learned about the research later. So at first it was just an experience. And if you take an emotion like, I don't know, regret, if you think back through your lives of those moments that you regret you did something or said something, Mm -hmm. where does it manifest for you physically? Now, you, you don't have to answer that, but I have heard answers of, Oh, it's, it's in my chest. Uh, it's in my, the back of my neck. Mm -hmm. It's in my forehead. It's in, you know, one person says it's in my ears. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I said, in your ears. They said, no, it's my ears. My ears actually burn. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so each person's different, but there, there is a physical manifestation of things that you're, you're going to wish later that you didn't say or didn't do right now and subsequently to me experiencing it i actually there's actually scientific research that relates the nerve system to all this but what i found personally was for me that pain is right smack in my sternum i can put my finger right on the spot that i feel the pain and so for me personally, once I became of aware of what the pain felt like, I also then became aware of the fact that the pain starts before you do something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a warning it's actually, sign. It's a warning sign. It's a precursor. It And I almost hate to admit this, especially if it's going to go beyond more than you and me here. Well, I can Uh, edit if you pay me enough. (laughs) No, I've (laughs) I've become so aware of that, Paul, that for a split second, I actually sometimes will have these debates in my head. Ron, you're about to say something stupid you're going to regret. (laughs) Yes, I know I am, but I'm going to say it anyway. No, you shouldn't, because you're going to wish you hadn't afterwards. I realize that, but I'm, I'm not sure I can keep myself from saying it right now. <laughs> and and I get this little back and forth debate in my head. It's like the, you know, the sh- the angel and the devil yes. sitting on your shoulder right. a little bit. I think there's something to that, <laughs> and I'll I have to admit right here. Uh, that there has been times since I've become aware of it that I've had enough self-control to back off what I'm about to say. There have been other times when even though I knew I was going to regret regret <laughs> it, I, I said it anyway. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> I, I do regret it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would so, give you some credit for being authentic, okay? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But the self-awareness is a big deal. Uh, you know, this relates to our generation and, and our folks' generation, the, the Nuremberg trials, which was to hold the people responsible for the genocide during World War II and everything. The biggest defensive statement that any of them made, and it was consistent across all of them, was, I never stopped to think about it. They, they were not self-aware. So that that lack of self-awareness contributed to the murder of millions of people. Uh, so yeah. it's not a trivial mm-hmm. thing. You know, no. this, this idea of being self-aware no. is incredibly important. And I think we all have the ability to self-rationalize, that we can say, sure. oh, this is not so bad. And when I used to counsel, I still counsel couples that I, I do their weddings, 
the men and I usually talk about what I call double clutching, which means that if you have a stick shift in a car, when you're ready to get going, you put your clutch in, you put your gear in, you're, you're off and running. But I had a, a 1975 Mustang that had the worst type of clutch. And sometimes <laughs> I thought I had the clutch in, I went to put the gear in it, it would grind, and I had to pull it back out and put it back in again, and then it would go mm-hmm. in. And in that time period, there was delay, uh, meaning, and then I think, am I putting it in the right gear after all? Maybe I'm not putting it in the right gear. So for right. men, sometimes they're quick to say, hey, this is what I should say. And I say, wait a second, double clutch. Pull it, you know, pull it back for a second. Think, is this the wise thing to say? Like you're saying, be mm-hmm. self-aware. And then yeah. say, is this the right thing to do? But I can tell you, listeners, Ron and I are not there yet. We're still a work in progress. Uh, by the grace of the Lord, do we keep on trying to do our best. And these are things we've learned over the years that have helped us uh, in our profession, in our home life. And Ron, we started the podcast thinking maybe we might not have enough time and we're already up at time. We filled up another podcast (laughs) quickly. And I always am surprised some of the things we cover. So Ron, uh, tell us about your website and, and then we'll sign off tonight. Uh, two ways to get there. Uh, the long way is uh, a single word, teamleadershipculture.com, or I've shortened that to tlcllc.com. I had to add the LLC because the learning channel already had <laughs> How TLC. Dare they? They, they weren't about to sell that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so tlcllc.com. Uh, blogs, book reviews. Uh, I'm writing a series right now about corporate cultures. That uh, just talks about some of my experience through the years. And Ron's also on uh, LinkedIn, and he posts some of his articles there as well. And he has an awesome daughter that does a lot of great work for him, social media, apricotlady.com, I believe, is her website yep, as well. apricot.com. Mm-hmm. So... Well, Ron, thanks so much again for being uh, my guest, my guest host today, and hopefully we can do some more this fall. We will, Paul. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks for listening to Man to Man. We're part of the Great American Man podcast family. If you have a question or comment, send it to me at contact at greatamericanman.org. This is Paul Arnold signing off, and hope you get out there and enjoy this great fall weather.